Hey everybody, it is episode 77 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is in the room with me. Hey Steve. I'm in the house. Good to see you back in person. After, Are you sure? After being in Colorado <laughs> for just a little bit. Back to the heat wave that we've got going in Texas right now. It's Oof. just out of control. We're going to be at over 100 degrees this weekend, which is pretty early for us to get those kinds of temperatures, but we're hanging in there. All right. So today, Steve, we are going to be covering a topic that we've gotten lots of questions on through our year and a half or so of podcasting now. We've had lots of people ask us about training paces, goal paces, how to pick goal times for their half marathon or marathon. And so we're going to be covering that topic pretty thoroughly today, talking about how you determine training paces. And then also as you get closer to your race, how do you think about picking a specific goal time for your race? So that's our main topic. Lots of tentacles to it. So we're excited to cover it. Before that, of course, we've got some intro topics. The first is just a sort of redux on our last week's episode, Steve. The running rants. We've gotten lots of commentary from near and far on that one so far. <laughs> Most of it's been positive, I would say. People enjoyed that episode. Had a few people disagree with us here and there, a but little nothing, contention nothing out there. Too crazy, nothing too crazy. Nothing too crazy. We did get an email though from Megan Lyons, who was our episode forty-five guest, where we talked about performance nutrition. She is now training with us in Dallas with our rogue training there in Dallas, working with Run On in Dallas, and so she just started a half marathon program with us, and so she got sent me an email this week. The subject was simply a complaint. <laughs> and Megan is somebody, if you know her, who never complains about anything. And so I thought, oh no, like we really screwed something up <laughs> for Megan and Dallas. <laughs> if she has a complaint, then we're, we're completely fucked. And, and then, of course, I start reading the email. I'm like, this is weird. Megan doesn't complain very often. This is so weird. And then I finally, as I got about halfway through it, realized that she was completely pulling our leg after listening to our episode. So I've got to read her email. Damn she, if she didn't pull in nearly all <laughs> 10 of these. See if you can count them, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Megan gets kudos for this email in response to our Running Rant podcast. I'll read it here. She says, Chris and Steve, I'm not going to meet my goal at the marathon this weekend because of you. Let me explain. On Tuesday's run, I was on pace for my fastest five miles ever at eight minutes per mile. I kept up with the pace group, even though I'm usually slow. I've always, I've always sucked at, at running and most everything else. <laughs> but some guy passed me, and I tried to race him to the next water stop. I would have won if it wasn't insanely hot. Who runs in this weather anyway? It sucks even worse because we bet $10, and I need that. Running shoes are freaking expensive, and the right sole of my <laughs> old shoes fell off 300 miles ago. Anyway, you must have marked the course wrong, because once I finished the five miles, my Garmin only said 4.92. It took me a whole 38 seconds to make up the distance by gerbiling in the parking lot. I am now feeling even more terrible about myself than I usually do, because I lost the bet, and I was 38 seconds slower than my goal time because of your error. Even though I haven't ever run more than five miles, I had serious goals for the marathon this weekend and really wanted to impress my friends with my untrained time. Whatever. <laughs> I'm still putting 40 minutes on social media for today's run. I deserve that. 
And if running were a real sport, some people may actually care enough to like my post. Frustrated, Megan. <laughs> That's awesome. So I think she hit all 10. I think she nailed it with that. <laughs> she completely nailed it. Uh, and even brought up one that we didn't even mention on the episode, which is people's sometimes silly obsession with posting their athletic feats on social media, <laughs> which, you know, might also be a slight pet peeve of mine, but we didn't even hit it. <laughs> so, we have a lot more pet peeves. <laughs> we have more. We may need a series on this. My assistant coach, <laughs> Stephen, from our AM group, immediately when Steve Chase told him, Steve went off on some, Steve and Chris went off some rounding rants. He, he asked about another one that I have that I didn't even reference, and he was like, how could you not have that one? I was like, well, the other five ones were so great. How could I... <laughs> So what was that one? Uh, it was. Hanging. It was. Oh, I'm gonna forget what it was. I have so many pet peeves. <laughs> Ash, what was it? Uh, I can't remember now. He'll oh he'll reference gosh. it. So it must. Not I'll be that I'll, big I'll think of, of it just a minute. You got anyway, me on, on so put me on spot. Thanks, Megan, for the email. If you haven't already checked out episode 45 with Megan talking about performance nutrition, check that out. And of course, if you oh have, wearing, I found it. I remembered it. Okay, wearing your race shirt on race day, <laughs> the shirt that they give <laughs> you. you. But it was yeah. also it was so bad that it's like an utter noob. So it's like unless it's required by the race, which occasionally it is. Like don't wear the shirt that you got at packet pickup at the race the next day. Sorry, I just did remember. <laughs> that's that's a pretty good one. So anyway, if you have other feedback, please do send it to us, Chris at roguerunning.com. Second topic for today, we've got to talk about something new that we're starting, or that sort of started already, but that we're bringing to the podcast. Yes. The Endorphin Book Club. And so we're going to be doing, we're going to shoot for a monthly book club with the podcast where we announce in advance, three to four weeks out, what book we're going to be reviewing, and then we'll do a podcast on that, incorporating your questions in the discussion. So hopefully allowing you a chance to read it and then follow along with us. We're going to be doing our book number one for the Endorphin Book Club coming up with a podcast that we'll be recording on June 28th with none other than the great Alex Hutchinson, who's going to be back in Austin. He's going to be in our studio live recording on the 28th, also doing a book signing that night here at Rogue, which is sold out already, but you can still get on the wait list if you'd like by going to our events page on Facebook. Alex is going to be here in person. We've already talked about his book, Endure, and we figured we needed to, since we're going to have him here, pick his book as our first book. We know some of you already read it, so we would encourage you to probably read it again and to drill into the details. We've talked about the book already on the the podcast, but really, really talked about it at kind of a high level. Didn't get into a lot of the detailed science and the detailed tactics. And so we're going to be doing Alex's book and then he's going to be here in person answering your questions if you send them to us for book number one of the Endorphin Book Club through the podcast. What else do I need to talk about that? We're going to have a, uh, I guess we'll have a drop down on our webpage for that, right, Chris, somewhere to basically announce it and give some basic details. Yep. We have an Instagram account that I set up a couple of week, months ago that only has one photo on it, but we'll, <laughs> we'll work on that. That's Endorphin Book Club. At Endorphin at, Book Club. At Endorphin Book Club, correct. And then we'll probably be playing with this on and off as we go along. You know, Chris, when I set up this Endorphin Book Club literally after a couple of beers on a Friday, af- Friday evening from my place in Colorado, I was like, 
this is a great idea. <laughs> and uh, well, crazily, I had like 20 people. I mean, I think I've got 42, wait, 42 <laughs> followers and I have only one photo up on the page. So it's obviously something that people resonate with. And I think that it's just another way for us to highlight, number one, the great, we don't, we've talked many times about doing book reviews on this site and we never get around to it, Chris, because we've got so much other information. So we're excited about having a book review book club portion to this podcast that will come and go just like our special episodes come and go. We'll do something monthly on a monthly basis, but we'll also be a little more free flowing with it. And I'm excited about it. I love to read. I love to read any running books there are. No, you do not need to send us any requests at this current point in time. We've We've got got six months list (laughs) already set. After that, you can start telling us if we suck at it, then we'll then we'll take some uh say some recommendations. But I don't think we're going to suck at it, Chris. Will we? We're pretty good. Especially at this stuff. not with Alex in the room. No, it's going to be amazing the for the one, first one. So that's going to be a good way to kick it off. So if you haven't already read Endure Mind Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, then check that out. Read it. Send me your questions. If you've already read it, we were, we're going to reread it, Steve and I. I've already read it basically one and a half times and I'll probably get another one or two in before we have Alex here. So if you have, if you haven't already read it or if you have read it, read it again, send us your questions, chris at roguerunning.com and we will tee up a list of those to debate and discuss with Alex when he's here. And Chris, we're going to, we're going to ask tough questions on for him. Yeah. I mean, we always, that we asked tough questions the first two times we did it, but we didn't, it, it would, it, I think he's going to be ready for us to be get a little more in-depth on all these topics. And um, I'm excited to talk to him about some of my pet topics. So <laughs> we should have some fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you haven't already checked out episode, uh, episode 48 with Alex when we talked about his seven pillars of running wisdom, check that out. And, of course, we talked about his book, Endure, on episode 64. So I would also check that out to make sure you're not re-asking questions that we've already covered on the podcast but that's book number one for the endorphin book club read it go like at endorphin book club on instagram and we'll be updating you when we talk to alex on what our next book will be for the book club but book number one is endure check it out all right now we're on to current events steve we've got to recap the prefontaine classic which was just an awesome meet. I mean, the the fields were stacked as we talked about, but then the meet itself definitely lived up to the hype. We're not going to be able to talk about all the events. We'll start with the ones where we did predictions and kind of cover off on how we did. You, Steve, nailed it with your predictions. You had Borrego winning the two mile and Castro Semenya winning the women's eight, which we both agreed on. We disagreed on on the two mile, but Borrega did it in relatively dominating fashion ultimately. So what was your take on being right on the men's two mile? I wasn't surprised. I mean, I, as I said, Gabriel Selassie sort of pitched him and said he was the next, going to be the next great. And so you knew he knew what he was doing. He'd also kind of sat back a little bit that year, hadn't really raced this year. And so I just thought he was going to come out full force. And he, he dominated. He ran. He won that race from behind, Chris. I mean, he just basically controlled nearly every piece of how that race went about. And I was even more impressed with him after the race than I was making that prediction. So I felt pretty good because he made me not only look good, but look good, re- look really, really good. <laughs> um, you know, Chalimos 
Chilimo's got a real challenge now. What things is he going to be able to do to turn, to get himself a chance um, next year at the World Championships and um, the year after that at the Olympics? What what will he be able to do to get? It seems like it seems like Ethiopia is just churning out more and more young, young talent. I mean, Borrega is eight, just turned eighteen years old. That's just mind boggling. So I was happy to be right, but I was surprised, honestly, how dominating he was in that event. Chalimo got second, so solid for the American. But you're right; he's going to have trouble knocking off Borrega and the and the other Ethiopians. I mean, they've got a lot of young athletes in mm-hmm. the 5k that are going to be difficult so in that race the big biff was from good old king jezerek who had i i had talked up he ended up finishing what almost dfl 15th. he was 15th out 15th. of 17 yeah it's like wow okay what happened there he started to play with the big boys and ended up 11 seconds off the pace just wasn't quite ready which makes me think that he must have had some kind of injury issue or something well that's what they in the spring that's what they played up they said he had a little problem with his achilles or his foot or something but let me tell you chris i i nobody in the elite world is actually listening to this podcast probably so i don't have any problem saying this i probably wouldn't say it to his face but his coach um steven haas he's he's never really coached an athlete at this level before. He's been involved. He's an agent, been an agent for a long, long time. He's a great guy and he knows what he's doing. But when you're coaching at this level, Chris, the level that he's trying to run at, any, you can't just, it's not just keep feeding it, just, just run them through the workouts. Everything has to be micromanaged, watched to an nth degree and played into so closely. And I'm just not sure that that system is dialed in quite right. It's hard. You know, one another thing is Cesarek, He's not been at altitude for a long, long time. You know, you're coming off of altitude. He hasn't been at altitude since, he was a, since he's been running his competitive career, at least since high school. And coming off of altitude and getting it all right, it's really hard to get all those pieces of the puzzle. So I'm not sleeping on Cesarek, right? Don't, don't throw this guy to the wolves yet. But that looked to me like a poor planning scenario le- rather than a, and that the athlete just didn't feel right. And so therefore, Cesarek, is not going to go through the motions and pretend if it's not there. But he got his blood doors blown off. But I think that this is probably much more about getting all the things right from a coach-athlete perspective. New coach, new environment, altitude. The, this coach hasn't, doesn't have a system necessarily at the elite level that works, even though he's a great agent. So I don't sleep on any of them. I think they'll probably get that right. But it doesn't surprise me that much that at their biggest stage, he he laid an, an egg <laughs> his first first real egg as a pro so far i mean he ran 349 indoors so let's not sleep on this right, dude this guy right. i mean that would have won the prefontaine mile right or yeah. he would have been right there so he been right there yeah. yeah so anyway we'll see but i was clearly wrong hats off to you for your pick americans did did well in this one overall if you look at the I top so 10 too. i mean we had second place in chalimo and then sixth through 10th with Ryan Hill, Jenkins, True, Emmanuel Bohr, and Hassan Mead rounding out the top 10. So that's pretty solid. Mohamed from Canada and Bowerman Track Club was fourth. So solid results from the North Americans in this one. Huge result for Mohamed. We, we talked about him beforehand, Chris. That was, that's a big race from him, known as more of a five, much more of a 10K guy. They, they do not sleep on this guy. This guy is going to be, he's going to be 
mixing it up with the best in the world and um this guy's really he may be the best guy on their roster outside of Jaeger. Hard to say exactly, but he's certainly getting some huge results right now. So the other Friday night event was the men's eight hundred, which just was bananas in terms Crazy. of how it played out. Manuel Courier, the young eight hundred meter runner from Kenya who is a UTEP University of Texas at El Paso athlete. He was basically tripped up with, you know, near the end of the first lap, took six steps on the inside of the rail, was tripped from behind, and then, and then lost some ground as a result, but came back to still get the win in 145-16 over Nigel Amos from Botswana. So just an unbelievable finish from career. You know, he's a guy who likes to front run. But in this case, it almost cost him because he got clipped from behind but still managed to come back for the win, which is just really unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. (laughs) So when you're going all out, especially in a race that short, to get clipped, lose your momentum, and then regain composure and get back in it, win it, unbelievable. So hats off to career for that win. I mean, he's when he's on, he's on, and there's almost nobody beating him. So what happened with uh, Brigier? He was supposed to be in that race. He was supposed to be in the race. He was on the start list, but didn't. That's a race he could have won the way that played start. out. There, yeah. there, there was one guy that could beat Career on that day, and he was not in the race. Yeah. So, I mean, Amos is can't. He has to run it a different way. But anyway, it was a. It was an. It was. It was. We saw exactly why Career is the best in the world. He's currently undoubtedly, in my opinion, the best in the world. He may not win the world championships as he didn't, but because he didn't even get to the starting line. Yeah, he's not the best tactician. No. (laughs) (laughs) But he's definitely the most talented, it would seem. So men's eight, pretty interesting. Women's eight, pretty much what we expected. Aji Wilson did beat Ninian Saba this time around. She She did. She'd typically been a third place finisher behind Semenya and Ninian Saba but ended up getting second, just edging Ninian Saba at the end. But Semenya did what Semenya does, which is basically dominate. I mean, what can you say? So, I mean, it's... You predicted that one. You know, Chris, it's not cheating because she's not... She didn't... She's not... No, I mean, she's she's following the rules at this point. But she's... It's just obvious. She has a testosterone advantage. Imagine how... I mean, just... It's just so sad to me for Aji, just how she's excited. She still likes to have her in the races, but she'd be the best 800-meter runner in the world. You know, I was thinking about that. I mean, the good thing for her, there's two good things for Aji. One is that she's always going to have somebody to chase, so it's going to lead her to fast times. Two, it makes the racing really predictable. And if you're Aji Wilson, then it's going to pretty much guarantee you can get second or third in any race. Because it makes the tactics really simple versus a lot of 800s without a dominant figure, they become crapshoots at some level. So, so it does mean that Ajay's going to easily slot into second or third in almost any race that Semenya's in. Absolutely. Okay, so switching over to my picks, and I, wasn't, I didn't have the same success. I picked Jenny Simpson in the women's 1500. She ended up third getting edged by Laura Muir, who got second, and then 
dominated down the stretch by Shelby Houlihan. Oh, it's so amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. The happiest race to be wrong about, right? Yes. Wow. I mean, in all, all, so to have two Americans, first and third, both under four minutes, is just unbelievable. This early in the year. This early in the year. I mean, it just goes to show you, again, as we've talked about, the women Americans right now in distance running are absolutely crushing it. Simpson tried to lead from the front essentially she was right behind the rabbits and when the rabbits peeled off she was on the front and tried to take it she pulled the mo yeah which you know you got to respect her for but at the same time it allowed muir and Tulahan to follow and sort of pick her off down the down the home stretch so she kind of missed timed her tactics a little bit simpson did but she damn near almost held on yeah just got passed in the final 10 meters but Hulahan finished she was 10th going into the last lap was patient, 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 and then just came roaring that last 200. Her last 200 is so smoking fast. It's crazy what... We saw it indoors, Chris. Like, there's a different gear that she hasn't... We've not seen from her that now seems to be in full... She's yeah. in full flight. And I, I, it's such... It's really exciting because this, this year is just going to be the perfect setup for her at the world level because there's not enough super pressure... She had the super pressure early on in the U.S. in the world U.S. champs and the world champs indoors, but now it's just go out and play in Europe and learn tactics and figure this stuff out. It's super exciting with Shelby Houlihan, whether she's 15 or five going into the world championships and the Olympics next year. Chris, we have a real world beater at this level, a a babyface killer, a killer of the <laughs> of the babyfaces at some point. I mean, at this point, if you're Houlihan, I don't know why you wouldn't focus on the 15. You have a better chance to medal in the 15 than the 5 by far. Right? Except, it, well, you think so. Except what if she brings all of that and she can stick and brings it all to the game? Yeah, but you're not going to run 14-20. Probably not. I mean, not. that's the thing. Yeah. So, I mean, Tababa, I mean, she ran, what, 14-20-something? Yeah, and then O'Berry right there. And, so, they're all, and they're all... And then you put in... Yeah. Alma Zayana and yep. so I mean, to me it would make sense if you can break four in the fifteen that you would just stay there. I think your best chance is, but who knows? She trains for the five, so I mean, she'd be ready for a five any point in time. Schumacher, yeah. in Schumacher we trust, so yes, we'll let him for do sure. his thing. That's exactly but right. Four second PR for Houlihan got the win coming from behind in the fifteen. I was happily wrong about that. You got to give Laura Muir credit because she didn't fade. Sometimes no. she fades down the stretch in some of these. So to, for her to get second was a big result for her. She's going for a great Brit. And Simpson, Britain, you Britain. know, hats off. This is her 10th time under four minutes, which I think is the most for any American ever. So that's amazing. On the men's steeple side, my other pick, I picked Concesis Cabruto to win. He ended up getting second to another Kenyan, a, a relative newbie in the mix for the steeple in Kenya, the uh, Keegan who ended up first Capruto was second and Jager darn near almost edge Capruto at the very end. They ended up with the same time to the hundredth of a second. And there was only a photo finish there. And, and Jager, he said he thought he beat him at the end. <laughs> and it looked like it to me, honestly, yeah. from watching it live, but I guess the, but that shit's never the, wrong. The photo, yeah. yeah, the photo finish is always right there. So anyway, not quite the way we expected it to play out. I've got two things to say here about the men's steeple. One, fuck NBC. They cut away <laughs> four times during wow. that race, including right before the final lap. Wow. Watching the NBC feed on Saturday. 
four times. And they didn't have it on the other channel? And they missed the big move, Keegan's Uh. move, where he gapped them by 10 or 15 meters at the start of that lap. I mean, you missed that because they had cut away to some field thing. And you're like, are you kidding me? Right before the final lap, you're going to cut away? I mean, I guess... that's all post-production, Chris, too. You could have watched it. No, it was live. They were doing it live. I mean, I could have watched it on my computer, I guess, and they probably would have shown the complete race. But we want the ratings. Yeah, I mean, so... We want the ratings. Yeah, I mean, I was watching the free live NBC feed. It's like, are you kidding me? Cut away four times. But... Anyway, Keegan blasted away and starting at the starting at the beginning of the final lap, got 10, 12 meters on both Capruto and Jager. Jager didn't respond immediately. Capruto tried to, was still a little bit gapped. And then ultimately Jager almost came by Capruto at the end, but Keegan was gone once he was gone. And so really impressive result from him. You kind of came out of nowhere to get that win, his first steeple win. And beating his countryman Caprudo, who's been dominating the world for a couple of years now. The world so, Championship Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, yeah, so that's huge. So who knows? It always, as as everybody now knows for me, it always raises eyebrows and questions if somebody kind of has a crazy breakthrough performance like that, that they're on the juice, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. But still, for Jager, big result to almost beat Caprudo. I think that bodes well for his season. be exciting to see if he can take some skinny get some Kenyan scalps in Europe. Let's see what else we need to talk about. Uh the men's mile, the Bowerman mile. Uh, the mile. So went out pretty blazing fast. Those runners were strung out from the beginning. You had Churyak get the win no and Managoy second. So basically the two Kenyans who've dominated the mile over the last 18 months or so for one, two. And it was interesting to see a couple of results there. You had Jakob Ingribits, Ingribitsen, the Norwegian. I'm probably <laughs> yeah. saying that wrong. The Seven, 12-year-old, I mean 17-year-old. 17 <laughs> get fourth in 352. So you had, sorry, Managoy was third. Tafera came around him at the very end. So you yeah. had Chiriot. First in 349, Tafera, the Ethiopian, second in 351, Managoy couldn't quite hang on to second, 352, and then then Jakob Ingritsen, 352, right behind Managoy, 17-year-old, unbelievable. Clayton Murphy was the top American over Centro in fifth in 353. Both of those were 353 because Centro was right behind him. Pretty good result for him, who's been sort of off the radar for, for a little bit. For both of them. Yeah, really for both of I them. I mean, I think... The th- thing that was disappointing to me was that Centro didn't really put his nose in it. You know, he he let the pace go early, which is fine, but then there was a... At one point, the Pacers kind of struck the group out even more, and there was a front group and a second group, and he sort of made the decision to hold back. And maybe that was smart given his fitness, but it felt to me like he could have been a little more aggressive in this one. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think, Chris, it's good to see them back. But he's the Olympic gold medalist. Where's the, where's the swagger? Where's the, <laughs> right. where's the testicular fortitude, <laughs> the t- big balls hanging down towards his knees? Where's the I'm the Olympic gold medalist and nobody else can roll with me? I'm not seeing it. And 
we need that back because that's part of his game. I want, you know, Chris, a lot of the, we give Zalazar a lot of shit on this podcast. We give him a lot of shit. But one thing he had right was the mind fuck. He had his athletes in the right place mentally, no matter what, made them believe that every workout they did mattered and that it was going to help them on race day. I don't, I don't, I don't know that Schumacher has that dialed in with his athletes quite yet. But Zalazar had that, and he definitely had it with Centro, which allowed Centro to show up at the biggest stages at just the right time because I believe part of that is the ability that his coach had to say, we've, done every, we've turned over every leaf, we've done every little thing we possibly can, you're ready to go, and Centro could run on trust. And now that he's trying to figure out a new programming, whether it's Salazar being implemented by his father or his father riding the program or however that's working out, whatever deal that got struck by Nike, who knows exactly what it all looks like. But it feels to me like it's going to be harder and harder and harder for Centro to be a dumb athlete. And that worries me a little bit because he needs to be a dumb athlete to beat the best in the world. And if he has to think through it, there's going to be problems for him. I think the Clayton Murphy's cut from the same cloth too, but it'll be interesting to say. But for Centro, we need him to get back on stage, and maybe he's just waiting. Maybe it's timing. Maybe it's he's going to show up when the time really counts, and I don't doubt that that will be, but he definitely needs to shore up that challenge there, one that I think is a real thing. It definitely means he's probably in decent position for USAs, which I would... I think I had mentioned earlier that I wasn't so sure that that would happen. That, yeah, he's ready. That Craig, Craig he's probably going to get another or, win. Or Clayton Murphy. Thank yeah, goodness I mean, there's not an Ingebrigtsen in our <laughs> world U.S. champs. Yeah. <laughs> so he's going to be probably president correct there, which is good. But I, I agree with you. I, I expected a little more panache, a little more swagger from him in this one, especially when you have essentially a no-risk race. It's like, who cares if you blow up? At your former home, crowd that's going to go crazy if you make right. a move. Like, what's, what's, to, what's not... I mean... Except for the fact that you're running against Manganoy and Chariot. I mean, what else are you worried about? Or a 17-year-old <laughs> who might nip you who did. I mean, you can see there's pressures there that we don't know, that we can sure. sit here from the catbird seat and fire aspersions and, and you know, it's uh, but, but you know what? You're the Olympic gold medalist and you're an American. You know, roll with it. Like, yeah. like buck up. Let's go. I'm yeah. sure there was a little bit of a bonus you got, and we're going to hold you accountable. Give us more results. <laughs> All right, so that's enough on Prefontaine. There are other great races there that we could talk about. You and I could probably talk about this all day, all day, and we yeah. will take take that uh, offline so that we don't torture people anymore. <laughs> but let's get to our main topic, Steve. And to tee this up, I've got a question that was emailed to us. That I think captures a lot of we're gonna of what we're gonna kind of talk about. And so thank you, Tracy, for emailing this question. I think I had told Tracy that we would answer this question in our listen, next listener's question podcast, but we just decided that there's so much meat to talk about with this topic that we're just going to make it a whole episode. So thank you, Tracy, for teeing this up. I want to read Tracy's email, just kind of tee up the discussion, and then we'll roll through it. First talking about sort of training paces and then talking about kind of specific goal setting as it relates to your race once you get closer to that. So here's Tracy's words. She says, my question is regarding the training paces that are referred to in the podcast. I've heard so many varying opinions on how to best determine training paces. 
Some say to just put in a recent race time in a calculator like McMillan to get training paces. But is this appropriate if the recent race time is short, 5K, 10K, and you're training for a marathon? Question mark. I've also heard that you have to train to the pace of your current fitness, not your goal time. But in the podcast, you often refer to marathon goal pace, and I'm just not quite clear on how best to determine this. How do you at Rogue recommend finding the appropriate paces for quality workouts? She, she said after that, I'm sorry if this is a bit of a lame question. <laughs> Which Tracy? It's not. No, it's. it's, 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 uh, it's, it's we're gonna awesome. de- we're gonna devote an entire podcast yeah. to your question. Yes, it's a great question. It's a great question, and one that, admittedly, you and I, Steve, sometimes use language that can be confusing, and we don't always agree. I think and the first thing is agree. we don't always agree on this topic. Number two, we use a variety of different conversation pieces with it. A couple of them are old school things that have come in. Some of them are the new school things we've added, but. A lot of this has to do with getting proper terminology, first of all, and, and, and proper doesn't mean we are the right ones. It's just understanding the lay of the land and the landscape with which we're discussing these topics and then choosing what's best for you, for those who are self-coached. If we coach you, we've got a, we've got a really simple system for you, but if yeah. we don't coach you, then we want to help you navigate this area. And so, Tracy, great question. Excited to, to dig deep on this one. Yes. So, and it's also appropriate because we just talked to Greg McMillan. So we got a little bit on his McMillan calculator, which you referenced, Tracy. So I think the timing of this is a good one. So I want to first drill into a careful and important distinction that I think sometimes our terminology, Steve, can confuse, which is that I often explain to my athletes that there are training paces and there are race paces. Those are different things. Sometimes you might choose to train at an equivalent half marathon pace that might be different from your marathon pace. Or sorry, that might be different from your actual half marathon race pace that you decide later. And so that's why we're splitting this discussion up a little bit is that you have training paces. That's sort of one thing. And sometimes they're correlated to, but aren't always the same as what you decide to do and execute on race day. But what you're trying to accomplish with these training paces is get essentially certain physiological outcomes. And that's something that we often forget because we we become so obsessed by pace that we forget that pace is really just a metric that we use to help us determine whether or not we're running the right effort to get the right training benefits for our ultimate goal race. And so pace is just a metric. Some people use heart rate. I know McMillan's calculator has even added heart rate ranges to their training pace tab. So heart rate is another metric that you can use instead of pace to determine the efforts you should be training at. We use pace because it's easy because you don't have to have a heart rate monitor. You don't have to have your heart rate max tested. And there's lots of things that if you're doing that right and technically right, according to a protocol like Phil Maffetone's protocol, then you need to basically do your homework on what your ranges are, your own personal heart rate ranges are. You need a heart rate monitor. You need all those things. It's more complicated. We like pace because it's approximation 
that can tell us whether or not you're at the right efforts, but the pace is just a proxy. And so anyway, so I first want to make that distinction, Stephen, I'll get your comments of distinguishing between training paces and ultimate racing paces. They can be different things. No, I think that Chris and I like to wing it sometimes on this podcast and we're winging this one for sure. I don't think we've ever, the way you just phrased that, Chris, is genius. That's exactly the way it should be talked about. Because all the things that I think we're disagreeing about, we're not really. One is training paces. And I have a method that I like to use that's relatively new. But I'm also in the back of my mind always referencing those race paces that are really the final arbiter of success or failure, right? So because what we want to know is what are you going to do on race day? That's what people are asking us to do when they pay us to get them ready for a race. They want a race result. So what are your race paces is kind of different than what your training paces are. So by setting those two basic giant buckets up or two columns up allows you to get through some of this other confusing rigmarole that goes on with discussion. I would put heart rate monitor training under training paces right. as another method yeah, I mean, because it's, it's a different re- metric. Because it's fucking irrelevant on race day. <laughs> if you run a 5k race and you're looking at your heart rate, good luck. <laughs> I guarantee you if you look at your watch, I will drop your ass even if I'm a fat 21 minute 5k guy i will still drop you no matter what because you're looking at your watch and trying to decide what's going on with a heart rate monitor so heart rate monitors don't really have a place unless you're an iron man who's like trying to get those numbers just right and in a marathon somebody who's worked on their heart rate and they know it as a metric of sort of effort-based training and other things that can be valuable but really keep those two separate training and racing paces that's a really good way to look at it from a from a big picture standpoint yeah, and so when we use the terminology marathon goal pace, sometimes that can be a little bit of a misnomer because it's oftentimes marathon training pace. Right. When executed in a workout, at some point it becomes marathon goal pace likely, especially as you get into more race-specific blocks in your training. But that can be a little bit of a misnomer. So Tracy, thank you for pointing out that, that that's a little bit confusing. What we're really meaning is marathon training pace. And when we say, we often say HMGP half marathon goal pace around here as well. And really what we mean is half marathon training pace, because sometimes your race pace is altogether different. It could be slower. It could be faster. You know, I've had both examples in my coaching of telling people to run slower than their training pace in their race. I've, I've had them run faster than their training pace in their race because they've gotten to a better place. But what you're trying to accomplish, again, with these training paces is, is achieve certain efforts in your training so that you're getting the physiological outcomes that you need. It's not necessarily about learning to run that pace for your race. I mean, it is at some level. At some point, it becomes about that. But initially, you're trying to get certain physiological outcomes. Race pace is where you want to be. Training paces is where you are. Right. And, and and for that reason, race pace matters, but it could frequently in a long training cycle, Chris, be something you're aspiring to, but you might not reach. Um, or you might not reach in training because that pace pushes you. Another thing, Chris, so many people are do much better at shorter distance work, and other people do better at longer distance work. And so when you plug things into calculators, 
they always have to be adjusted for that personal strength attribute that that athlete brings to to bear. So then the next question becomes, once we've established that, that we sort of got these two buckets of thinking, training and racing paces. The next question becomes, well, then how do I determine my training paces? Right? Yep. And the answer to that one, we're going to kind of meander through because it's, there's lots of different things to look at. As I tell my runners all the time, there's lots of data points that I look at in determining what their training paces should be. Those data points include time trials, which we do here and we'll talk about here in a second. They include recent race results, as you referenced, Tracy. They might include what I know about that person from prior training blocks. And they could also include as a data point what the goal is for that person and how close it may or may not be to other race results that they have. So there's lots of things to look at. At the very basic level for us, Steve, if we're talking to an athlete that we don't know that's new to our programming, we really, really like the time trial as the best way to determine training paces. And so we'll have people do two mile. You just recently did a 5K time trial with your group. So two or three mile time trials as a fitness test, essentially a VO2 max test to determine fitness levels and then extrapolate from their training paces using a calculator like McMillan's calculator. So that's for those that are completely new, walked off the street, I have no idea about your history and background. So let's talk about that for a second. So what does a time trial look like and how can people use that to determine what their training paces should be? You know, Chris, we did the 5K time trial for the first time in all of my years as a coach. That was because I was trying to get a baseline for my athletes that were doing our speed development phase that we're going into right now. Because I knew they would do a 5K at the front end of the program, and then they would do a 5K at the back end of the program. And mostly I did it just so I would be able to tell that, that they would be able to see an improvement, that, that the work we did paid dividends, and that if they paid dividends in the 5K range, in that speed development range, they would more than likely pay huge dividends when they ran down, would come down the road in our CIM preparation coming up this year. So, but I don't like the 5K distance as a time trial because I don't think that athletes are really capable. There's a lot of strategy that goes into an appropriately run 5K. And that's something that happens with 3,200 meters or eight laps around the track. It's just a really hard slog from the very beginning. And it's manageable. People can really get through eight laps of hard work better than they can get through 12 and a half laps of, of hard work. So if I was going to recommend somebody do a time trial, I would almost always, and now I'm, I'm pretty adamant about doing a, five, a, time tri- a time trial of 3,200 meters in length. There's a lot of really good physiological reasons for that. They say that's, that's the inflection point that they like to term, use as a term in exercise physiology, the spot where you actually see people shift immediately in a, in a re- real time quickly where they begin to really accumulate lactic acid. If they do a VO2x or a lactate test on a track with a, with a running apparatus um, and then a, a pinprick test, they'll almost always go 3,000 meters or 3,200 meters. So there's something really magical about that distance. The problem, Chris, with the time trial is so many marathoner and half marathoner folks, just it's absolutely so new. 
it's scary as shit. It hurts so bad. And it seems like nine times out of 10, we do it at a hot time of the year on a track. And so people's results because of stress and other things, it can become like an issue, right? It just becomes a challenge for people to wrap their heads around. It becomes a challenge for them to deal with the, you know, did they succeed or did they fail? It's, it's, it's a real problem. So we get it, but trust us, just do it. Get out there. How do you do it? Get a proper warm up. get some drills in, light drills in, do some strides. Make sure you're ready. And when you're ready, start off with a pace you think you can handle, right? And if you need to plug it into a calculator to get an idea, but if, as long as you're within five seconds per 400, that's 20 seconds a mile, Chris. That's a huge range. As long as you're within five seconds for your first lap, you'll be able to make that five seconds up later on in the run if you need to. But if you go out too fast, it's almost impossible to, you don't get recovered enough to get where you need to be. So just start off at a, at a, at a, at a pretty hard, but still manageable leather level. Keep your breathing in control. Listen to your breathing, pay attention to your breathing. And as the run goes from the first two laps into the next two laps, so you're going into the mile mark, you should be flying and knowing where you're at. And then it's just holding on from there. But that half, that 3,200 meter time trial tells us pretty much with a really high level of accuracy where the athlete is right then and there. And it ensures, Chris, that we're not going to overtrain our athletes for the 10K, the half marathon, and the marathon paces we might plug in from just that parameter. So eight laps, all out. That's a vomit fest, basically. It's hard, man. Now, Tracy's question, she talked about it relative to a 5K race, but but people would have it, I'm sure, relative to a two-mile time trial as well, which is how is it that a two-mile time trial can tell me anything about training paces for a marathon? It just makes sure we don't fuck it up, honestly. Because as you said and referenced earlier, Chris, we're going to be adding data point after data point after data point, point as many as we can get. Some based on training, some based on some periodic races in the schedule, some based on if you're coached, some insights or intel that a coach might be able to give you. But it's just one point, and it makes sure that we actually set a, you know, a line in the sand or a, or a stake point down that says, we are here now. I love it when my athletes run a two-mile time trial and they don't like the time that they get from it because then I know that they're going to be motivated and inspired to move forward. We've had a couple. We just did a time trial, time trial recently. We did the longer version of this time trial with our podcast training group. And some people walked away from that kind of strutting a little bit, didn't they? They had their, their tail feathers moving. Oh, I liked what I got. And I'm always like, oh, this is the hardest for them because it's going to make it challenging because they're probably a fast twitch muscle fiber type and they probably succeeded at that because that's what they're better at and it might not play out. So we get you, Tracy. It doesn't play out that a 3,200 meter time trial or a 5K time trial is going to accurately predict your marathon time or your half marathon time. What it does is give us, gives us a real time date pace determined number that says, let's not variate, do too much variation from this point. This is where we're starting. Where are we going? Gives you a starting point. Now you mentioned the word date, the words date pace, which sometimes will be referenced in different training paces versus goal pace. So give us a quick definition there. Date pace is the most recent result, race result you have in real time that you gave a full effort at. So it can be a time trial, it can be a 5K race, a 10K race, a 15K race. 
In fact, we almost always recommend that people jump into different distance races on occasion. You know, maybe not 15 of them, but on occasion that they jump into a race to see where they're at. As a tester, that just allows us to get another, another data point. But the date pace just means it's where you are today. Chris, I've had athletes in my training programs that might have started at a date pace of, let's say, three hours and 20 minutes for a marathon. And I've had those athletes run 305 for the marathon. I mean, that sounds crazy. But a lot of times it's because we did it at a 3,200-meter time trial. It didn't indicate their real strengths. But, and, and they were much better than that because it was more of a marathon or type or a slow-twitch fiber type. And so they were able to do much better as the training went along. And so I've seen these big aberrations. What we're doing is guaranteeing that they're not overtraining. No one's going to overtrain if you start at the paces based on a time trial or a date pace schedule. It's just to ensure that we don't injure you, hurt you, or lose you along the way in any program that we might create. Which is a good point. It's better to be undercooked. Always. And consistent. Once and, you're and overcooked, you're cooked. Than overcooked. Once the meat is no longer bleeding, it is no longer good. You're done. You're, you're done. done. So <laughs> it's generally better to be undercooked, and which is a which is a great sort of side point to make here, which is that your best bet is to err on the conservative side of these decisions when you're making decisions about training pace. Because if you if you do too much, you'll either get hurt, which will impede your consistency, or as you mentioned, you'll get overcooked and and you'll get burned out, so to speak, in your training block and not be able to perform when you actually get to the race itself. So generally, err on the conservative side when deciding training paces. The other thing besides a time trial you can look at is other recent race results like you referenced. Tracy, if you have a 5K or 10K where you went full effort, you can use that as a data point to plug in and get paces or even a half marathon. It's probably best to use either a time trial or a recent full race result to get these paces. And then once you have that data point, and in the case of the eight laps, the 3,200 meter time trial, you would take that, plug it into McMillan's calculator, and it gives you on the left-hand column there in his output the sort of current times for each of all the different potential distances from one mile to 3K to 5K, all the way up to half marathon and marathon, which will tell you exactly the paces you should be running at given your current fitness. And as Greg mentioned in our podcast, when he was on a few episodes ago, he said, you know, those paces are set up basically to take you to the next level. So they're designed if you train at those current paces to get you to a step beyond that's built into the calculator. So that's essentially how we do it. Now there's some nuance to that and a couple of nuances that we'll, that we'll talk about and we'll start Steve with your now patented three pace range. <laughs> I'm trying to patent it. <laughs> so I you know, like this. It's because, working for me. You know, because you can get those specific paces, and if you get your output from McMillan, it will tell you, you know, and I I plugged in paces for my recent 5K time trial, so it's telling me that my half marathon pace, based on my recent 5K time trial, should be 629 per mile right now. 
So it's telling me something very specific. But what we know in training as coaches is that how you feel on a given day, especially on a warm day or warm summer day like we have happening now, or how you might evolve through the training program as you start to respond to the stimuli means that it's really more of a range that you're looking at versus a specific pace, especially when you're not doing race-specific work. So talk about your three-pace range and how you'd recommend implementing that if somebody was doing this on their own. You know, Chris, I just stumbled on this. I mean, it's all, I think all genius ideas, in my opinion, kind of come when you just stumble on things. But I'm, I've been sticking to it. This is the longest I've stuck to any kind of training theory other than the basic principles. But So this idea came about primarily from the fact of, number one, watching athletes overtrain, people who consistently tried to outperform their current fitness level or were looking and so geared towards what their goal times were that they would um, frequently get themselves into trouble, either from an injury perspective, overtraining perspective. But even more, Chris, this comes along from the line of giving people positive workout training experiences. And then I had another old group of people who would just always, I would call it sandbag or just stay easy or make sure they didn't get hurt or a wide variety of different quote-unquote excuses. I don't want them to be excuses. They were rational, reasonable thoughtful reasons why someone might decide that that was where they needed to go. But what I wanted them to do was to not be in either one camp or the other camp, Chris, but for them to float based on the given day or the given training cycle or the given where we are in our macro cycle, but to be able to have the, the ability to float between of the fastest pace, which would probably be somewhere near their goal pace. So the, the three pace system usually says, where do you want to be one race day at California International Marathon on the 2nd of December in 2018. And what did your worst case result scenario indicate? Now, once I get their goal time, Chris, the other thing is, is with this three-pace system, I don't actually need a time trial because once I know where they want to be, if they're marathoners, I'm able to back off. So the first pace is, let's say I want to run three hours for the marathon, sub three hours for the marathon. Then their three-pace system would be three hours, 305, 310. And almost anybody, I should be very careful here. <laughs> Most people, if they've been training consistently, will be able to run within 10 minutes of their marathon goal pace time on marathon goal pace work, right? On marathon pace work. Now, whether they'll be able to run in that range at 5K pace work is something altogether different. And so, the three-pace system came about, number one, to be sure that people didn't overtrain and people didn't undertrain. And then I began to realize, oh my goodness, this is actually an incredible way to optimally train because it allows somebody who has a weak... It's like what McMillan has. If you're a speed merchant or what's his term? Speed deem... Speedster. Speedster and then a strength stir or something. What's his <laughs> other term? I don't know. Anyway, I just put into the three-pace system and it makes sure that when you're feeling a speedy on a day, you can go to a certain point. When you're feeling slow on a certain day, you can be in a certain point and still be in your training pace range. And by having that wide range of paces, three paces, it allows you to see where you're standing. People who train consistently at the front end of that three-pace range or at their goal times consistently, they're probably ready to run even faster than the time that they indicated. People who are unable to train throughout a training cycle and they have to be at the slow end of it, or they're not actually hitting the slow end of it, I'm usually much more um, conservative with their race approach and how they'll approach a race. 
This helps for the strength. Those people who are good at the marathon pace, they've got a, a, an edge on the far end that allows them to be successful. But many of those people who are really good marathoners are not very good at the 3K, 5K range. And so when they plug their number into the McMillan calculator, it discourages them because their goal pace is faster than they can possibly run. But more often than not, even the third pace that of that three-pace system is still within their range ability to hit that 3K and 5K pace. So they're still feeling like they're staying in the range. Chris, the real challenge with the three-pace system is to get people to believe it actually works, which now that I've seen it play out, the people who commit to it, I'm, they're having happier runs, more consistent runs, and feeling like they're in a training mode or in a training benefit mode for throughout the entire training cycle. I used to be the huge believer in, in, in effort paces, and I'm still a believer in effort paces. But effort pace is like, being on effort is like reading philosophy. You're really not fucking sure what the guy was talking about. It sounds good. You're pretty sure it's right. You don't really know. But it's not based on any number that you can actually hold on to. And so people start to really question it. There's a faith aspect that goes with the effort-based training that kind of makes people uncomfortable and feel a little bit like, am I real? is this really real or is this not real? And by giving a three-pace system, it sort of says, here's the widest range we can possibly give you. Well, not possibly, but the best wide range, a wide range we can give you that hits three different data points that you can train with over a period of six weeks, 18 weeks, 36 weeks, two years, 10 years. And those, that three-pace system keeps shifting and moving forward. And as soon as you reach a goal or get within a, a, a reasonable window of your goal, we bump you back up. Why do we bump them from all of a sudden somebody runs, let's say somebody runs 302.01 on a hot day and doesn't get it done, or somebody runs 308 at Boston this year. You know what? I'm probably going to move them to the 255, three-hour, 305 range. You know I'm going to move them there? Because I think that that result gave them the window and the ability to be able to fit in there. And not only do the athletes feel like they're seeing progress that goes beyond just what they might get from a race result, they're engaged in their training. They're noticing that their training is actually falling within some windows that they can actually feel good about. And there's a reasonable amount of scientific rigor here that gives them the feeling that they're doing the right thing. So there's a lot of different things in there, Chris, but that's why I like it. And it's why I'm starting to see it play out. We'll see if I patent it. Maybe I will. We'll see. Could be a rogue thing. It, it does give you the flexibility also to recognize that your pace may vary from day to day while your effort is the same. And if it falls within that range, you can still be happy. So, you're still training. You know, you're so still let's say you were, you were Your three pace range was around four hours and you were 355, four hours, 405. That was your sort of range you were operating within. You know, if, if you were doing a marathon pace run, that would mean you'd be operating between 858 per mile for that 355 group all the way to 920 for that 405 group or that 405 pace. And so that gives you 22 second range essentially that you can operate in for your marathon pace. Huge safety net. That where you can, if you feel, if you find yourself anywhere within that range based on how you feel, you can feel like you had success that day. And it will also tell you over time, as you do more and more of that, if I tend to be comfortable at the faster end of that range, it tells me, okay, maybe I'm actually more of a 355 runner. If, if I struggle with that and I'm more at the 920 side of that range, 
then that tells you something that, hey, maybe I'm more of a a four or five runner for this race. So it does give you that flexibility to operate within a certain range. Do you have those numbers on hand right now that you're looking at? What do you mean? Or just come up with that. Those ones you just came up with, the pace ranges. Oh, well, I I just did real quick. (laughs) So what does it look on 5K? So... 5K. Let's use that as I an example. Know. But it would be, I mean, it would be a similar range. But it would probably 20 be like seconds. 20 seconds, right? But see, that 20 seconds in 400 meter repeats or 800 meter repeats is a huge range of getting work done while not being so myopically focused on some certain pace. Um, yes. It's, yes. Yeah. That's just Give yourself it, some slack, people. And it also, another key thing here, Chris. I tell people, do not run faster than your fast fast end of it. And then we stop overtraining. And if I get people to believe in that, what they see is they just stay at that far end of this. You know, Kristen Tucker's had some recently good results, and I think it's because she bought into my three-pace system. She also bought into the freaking crazy mojo that we've got going on. There's a whole team. But she's also, but she's just said, tell me what to do, boss, and I'll do it. And... She had an entire cycle going into CIM, Chris, where she had every single workout was at her, was right at her three-pace system, and she didn't go faster. Occasionally, she would do it on her easy runs and other things, but she tried to stay in that range, and she didn't overtrain through that cycle, and she nailed what she wanted to nail. I think it's because none of us got greedy. I didn't get greedy because I knew she was on the far end of where she wanted to be. She didn't get greedy because she believed that the thing was going well, and when she had a bad, she didn't have a single bad day. But now she's in a new pace range because she jumped because she had a great result. Well, now she's not feeling so bad when she's hitting 255s or 250 range and she can't hit the faster range of where she wants to be. She's like, it's okay. I'm still in a training mode and I'm not quite where I'm at right now. I can play with that. So that's one example of an athlete who uses the three-pace system and it worked for them to keep them under-trained. It also works now to give them something to fight for but not feel like they're losing because they're not hitting their direct 245 paces from 3K all the way to marathon. It's a lot of stress and pressure for every quality workout that you go into thinking you have to nail it on pace to be ready for your race. And this system gives a lot more flex and allows fitness to play out the way fitness really plays out in real time. Yes. Because I'll remind people, and I've said this before, the marathon game, especially half marathon game as well, it's an efficiency game. It's about being in control. It's not about killing yourself in training. So that flexibility can help you do that. And if you're looking at the marathon, we recommend five-minute intervals on that three-pace range. If it was the half, you'd be doing two-and-a-half-minute intervals to get a three-pace system there. so I'd do a minute on 10K, and I'd probably do 30 seconds on a, on a 5K. And I have those numbers there I just pulled out of my rear end, but I think they're pretty <laughs> close. But just, just for our listeners who then hold, me, hold us accountable for exactly those, but that's where I would be ballpark range, yeah. somewhere in there. So next thing I want to talk about, because there's often more debate about this, is usually the calculators all give you pretty similar outputs when it comes to specific race paces but they don't necessarily agree or you get a lot of different differing opinions on easy running and how your easy running should relate to things like your marathon training pace and so forth so i want to talk a little bit about that and again this isn't an exact science because we're talking about efforts again but we give people sometimes pace ranges so they can make sure they're in the right effort 
But just as a reminder, when you're running easy, when you're running easy miles, the most important thing is that you're in a conversational effort zone so that you can speak comfortably in full sentences while running. That's really the most important metric. Now, I give people paces in my group because they're anal about it and they want to know that their garment is because they them need the right them. things. They need them, exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, there are paces that I'm going to give you that I convey to my group about what you should be doing on easy days. But these aren't necessarily the end all and be all. They're just the paces that I recommend that I've also had a lot of success recommending over the years. But so just to give people reference points and benchmarks. So for me, what I tell people, using marathon training pace as a reference point, I want their recovery runs. So those runs that are easy runs happening after a long run or after a quality workout day, their recovery runs to be at least 90 seconds slower than their marathon goal pace. But really could be even slower than that. I did a run on Sunday, Steve. My marathon goal pace is 6.20 per mile. My first mile of that run was 1030 1030 <laughs> check it was four <laughs> over four minutes slower than my marathon goal pace warm day i'd been to a wedding the night before so it was you had know a, had a, a little, had a few had a, a few little, beverages you know a little affected <laughs> a little fuzzy a little fuzzy <laughs> and was also just so just was generally tired the body needed a 10.30 to get rolling. Ultimately, I found a rhythm somewhere around 8.30 on that day after a few miles. But I started at 10.30. Wow. And then I think I averaged you know, about two minutes slower on that day than my, than my marathon goal pace. But got the miles done. Felt good about it. At the end, felt better than when I started. That's what you want to happen on a recovery run. For my long runs, I recommend that people run at least a minute to two minutes slower than their marathon training pace. And for other easy runs, like medium long runs, days that aren't recovery runs or long runs, I recommend that people run 30 seconds to 90 seconds slower than their marathon training pace to ensure that they're in that conversational zone. Now, most of the time, it's okay to go slower than that because you're still getting that aerobic development. But technically, from a technical standpoint, it is possible to go too slow, although that's like walk in the park kind of slow. So for most people, they're physically not able to actually run that slow relative to their marathon training pace. But basically, you want to be running easy on your easy days. That's so important. So make sure you're well away from your marathon training pace. I have people come up to me occasionally and say something like, do you think I can run X for the marathon? I just did 20 miles at that pace. <laughs> and my unfortunate response is usually, well, fuck. Race day. You just, just, just happened. You just did it. You're done. You're <laughs> overcooking yourself. So remember those key principles on making sure your easy runs are easy enough to get the training benefit that you need. 
because if you're going too fast, you're literally wasting your miles. You're not in the right aerobic zone to be building that aerobic capacity, the, the size of your engine that you need to ultimately run your fastest race when the race comes. So there we go. That's a lot on training paces, Steve. Is there <laughs> anything we're missing, you think? Because I want to now shift to talking about race goal determination. So there's going to be... So our, for our folks that are out there doing this completely on their own, right? Um, you, you guys are challenged because one of the benefits that... what This is coming to you from... Steve and Chris, who put on this podcast, who've been doing this for a long time and are coaching large groups of people together who we now are kind of in our own coaching protocols and methods and sort of intuitive natures using our athletes and our groups as almost assistant coaches, trusting that people will find their place, stretch sometimes, ease off other times. Um. For our listeners who are self-coached and doing most of this by themselves, and I know there are a good number of them. They, they reference us, Chris, frequently. They, they let us know who they are. It's really, I think it, it's even more imperative for you guys to follow these sort of stricter pace-related guidelines when it comes to training. Because if you just go on feel all the time, you might be falling into some real... So what I call blind spots or your own idiosyncratic traps, you'll either feel good on certain days that are your best day and you'll feel especially terrible on days that are not your favorite workout day. And so whether you use the three pace training system, which I recommend, or you use a system that basically utilizes date pace and goal pace, please don't cheat that pace system. Because especially when we go into, if any of you guys are in, in, in southern areas or in places where the weather conditions are tough, you really want to be able to use hard numbers to go alongside effort-based training methodologies because you don't have the benefit of each other, of other people in your group helping you decide if you're having a good day or a bad day. Does that make sense? I think that there's just some other piece of the puzzle here for our listeners that do self-trained stuff and are running most of their stuff by themselves. Yeah. And if you're following something you pulled off the internet or Hanson's method out of their book or whatever, maybe whatever you're following advanced marathoning from Fitzinger, if you're following those systems and you get a workout that says run 10 K pace, run 10 K pace based on the methods we just described. Absolutely. Because if you're going faster than that, then you're not getting the benefit of the workout you need. And if it feels easy to you, that's okay. Let it feel easy and just make it the goal being making it feel as easy as possible. Because you have to follow the system that you're in. And if you're not following it to the letter of the law, then you're wasting your time following that system. And remember, people, that not every workout is designed to put you to the edge in the wall. Our podcast training group, we just had a hill rep workout that we did last week, and then we did our two-mile, some 5K work and some two-mile. And one of, the, one of the questions on there was, well, the hill workout ate my lunch, but the, the two-mile, the steady run with 400 meters in there wasn't so bad. I felt like I could manage it. Well, check. 
than than doing well because one was designed less about pace and more about effort with the hills and the other one was much more about hitting the paces and then trying to get through what you could get through and if it felt easy then we're in a good spot you you're you're in the range of where you need to be you'll see the benefits from both of those two different kinds of workouts and by the way if you're doing workouts and you're finishing them on whatever system you're following feeling completely spent and dead and taking several days to recover from those workouts that probably means your paces are too fast and you need to back off so there's definitely also the need to listen to your body as you go make sure you're adjusting based on how you feel and if you should always finish a workout generally feeling like you could do at least one more rep and if you don't that probably means your paces are too fast so adjust Maybe work towards the slower end of the range in your three-pace system and see how it goes. Okay, let's talk about then how you take some of the data points learned by following those training paces and figure out what your goal race pace should be. So really the first question, Steve, in determining your goal race pace is what is your training telling you, right? What has running these paces in workouts, in your race pace specific workouts, what are they telling you about what you're prepared to run? Yes, that's the great way to frame it. Of course, I don't ever frame it that way. <laughs> the way I like to frame it is, what the fuck do you want, right? And then what Chris just said. So what do you really want? Because I do think that that's always a no, bit. it's important. It is. And then you do, what are all these data points telling you? And where does that sit with what you want? Because the people who come to us who don't know what they want we're really cool with that. Our job is easy. It's like no sweat off our backs. I mean, literally just plug and play, do training, stay healthy, get faster. I mean, really, right? Right. It's the problem we always run into is that people have expectations and goals and times and how do you run the traps between the two of those? And that's sort of the, that's where a coach really comes in, Chris. And I'm not sure that we can, we can give some objectives. We can give some recommendations, but basically this is where guys like Chris and I and the other coaches that work in our system that are influenced by us, the great coaches in the country and the world, this is, what they, this is why they get they paid what they get paid because they're able to tell you whether you're full of shit or if you're legit. <laughs> that rhymed. <laughs> so since you brought it up, Steve. <laughs> really? Because I so did? <laughs> you brought up the what do you want question because you ask people in your one-on-ones a few questions. So let's just lay that out there. I'll okay. let you have the podium. All right. So first off, what do you want? Where are we, where are we coming at this from? Because I think you ask a different question, Chris, when you start. But yeah. I, I start with what do you want? Because most of the people that I'm dealing with are already super above level type A people that are off the charts. And they know exactly what they want. That's why they came to my Team Row group. Um, we've developed a reputation for getting people big goals and uh, achieving big goals. Um, and so I never want to sort of pop a balloon if somebody has an idea about what they want. I'll guffaw or snort or chortle or laugh or do many of a different, many different things to sort of 
try to get to a real number, but what I want to do is to make them believe that the amazing is possible. That's the first thing I want to know. Where do you want to be? And then the next question I ask is, what are you willing to give us? Like, what are you willing to give this group? Um, and to the people who are training themselves, I would say, what are you willing to give yourself? And that means, how important is this goal to what you really want to accomplish? Are, are you just telling me something because that number would look good on a plaque or on a results sheet or somewhere else? Or you want to get your BQ, but you don't really know what it means? Or are you willing to do the hard work necessary to get there? And then the corollary to that or the B to that is, do we have enough time to get there? Because I've got many people who I was able to get to a BQ and they wanted it in six months, but it took me 12 or 18 months to get it, but we got it. You know, whether that's a delivery on services rendered, I'm not sure. I do believe it is, but they might have expected a shorter time frame. And then the last thing is, um, do you even know what that means? And so that last point is sort of context. Like, okay, here's your big giant goal. Are you willing to do the work? Are you committed to the process? And do you even really fucking know what that means? And I'm absolutely flabbergasted. I think to this day, I've had 10% of the people that I've ever talked to ever, ever. This is elite athletes. This is beginner runners that really did know what that meant to them. And this brings in the point that you start with, which is probably why you start with it, which goes back to our very, one of our very first podcasts is, what's your statement of purpose? Why are you even out here doing what you're doing? Which comes, brings the whole circle full circle, right? But the way I do it is because I've got a higher sort of more type A, really results-driven folks. I say, what do you want? Big picture, crazy goal. Are you willing to do the work? And do you even know what that work means? And after that, I usually have created a dialogue and I'm usually in a good spot with people because I've asked those questions over and over again. I ask them in very different ways. I don't use those terms every single time, but that's where I start. Well, these are questions you're asking at the beginning of the cycle, right? Yes. More but, or less. But that's what this question that I think we've gotten from Tracy is. It's like she's, maybe she's not at the beginning of her cycle, but no, these I agree. The I questions agree. are still but relevant. I'm not dismissing what you just said. I'm just saying that there's those questions that, that might come at the beginning Right. About what you Oh, you're want. talking about what but happens before the race. I'm also talking about like two weeks out, four weeks out from your oh, race. Oh, shit. That's a dot different. Number one, it's what you want. Yeah. Right? Well, Again. It's, it's not dissimilar, though. It's it just sort of a refined So how would you say it? it? So I, and, I'll, and I'll rephrase after you before I, I don't want to <laughs> over, take over well, the mic I'm, here. I'm, I'm just saying that the discussion or the thought process, if you're training yourself, needs to happen at both points. At the beginning of your cycle, in context with your training paces. And then near the end of the cycle, probably not more than or not less than four weeks out from your goal race, you need to start honing in on the pace. Probably even six to eight weeks out, you need to start honing in on your goal pace. So when you're doing race-specific workouts or race-pace-specific workouts, you know what to dial in for, which might be slight variations off your training paces at that point. So when I'm having those conversations... My, I usually just ask one question is, what are you planning to run? <laughs> you know, embedded within that is, what do you think you can run with? What do you want to run with? What are you prepared to run, right? All those questions to me kind of just come down to what's your number? Like is sort of how I ask it. 
I ask it in a little bit of a different way. What's your number? How's this going to play out? (laughs) I like to ask it that way because how's this going to play out? out? Like based on the training you've done, like what do you think is going to happen? Because it's sort of, it's the same question, Chris. Yeah. Oh, I'm not saying it's it's not. No, no, I wasn't either. I'm just saying it's like, and again, this is where coaches earn their keep is asking those tough questions. And then, and then how, how much do you go through their training log or through their workout progression? Do you look at that? for them when they, when you're working with that? Or do you try to key on a few key workouts? Or how do you go through that conversation of determining whether they're ready based on a, a wide variety of things? Typically, I don't look at anything because it'll all be in my head at some level. You know, it's like we both, and good coaches have this, that you have this spidey sense of being able to know what someone's ready to do. That you can't really put a process behind it's like this black box that happens in your head that when somebody usually gets close to a race and I've been able to watch them in workouts get reports from them periodically during training have the conversations I've had with them about how aggressive they want to be and all those things I just usually have a number in my head that's sort of an assimilation of all those things it's so funny I never have a number in my head I w- I'm determining a number in that process with them. In the conversation. Based on the same things that you're talking about. I yeah. know where I think they're at and if they're still a little too uh, t- still a little too gung-ho about what their goal is, I'll try to talk them off that ledge. And then I try to create a race plan that will allow them to get a chance to succeed at it. But that's another whole conversation But altogether. I always make them give me the first answer. Yes, I always like, do I too. always want them to so tell me what do they want to try yes. to shoot for. And then more often than not, Probably because you keep ramming it down the road. (laughs) I I keep a tight leash on them. They usually come up with a similar or same number that I have in my head. I have the same. In which case, it's very easy. You know, what goes into that? Certainly, data points from training. I do think that if I'm thinking about my mental model, one of the things that skews very heavily in my mental model for what somebody's prepared for is their performance in race pace workouts within long runs long run workouts race preps we call them you know we used to have other names for for them that were a little soul soul busters a little more aggressive (laughs) you've stopped busting souls as much i did and we get better results results. but uh anyway (laughs) but those are those certainly key very heavily into my thinking if I were to try to dissect the black box. And I think for anybody who's coaching themselves or following a program, that's something really important to look at is how did you do in your long runs that had pace work? You know, we talked about some of those examples in our second quality workout episode. I believe that was episode 74. And so somebody could go back and listen to some examples of our race pace long runs. Those, I think, are really, really important data points. But ultimately, you've got to ask yourself, if you're listening and following along to your, to your own program, coaching yourself, is how have I done in training relative to the three pace range? If you're using one, if you're not using one, how have I done relative to my target paces? If I've hit them most of the time and it's felt good and comfortable in control, then that's usually a sign that you're ready to run that pace on race day. I agree. If you've struggled, if it's been... A battle. Now, that's not to say you have to hit every workout because I've had several of my PRs in the marathon come after situations where I struggled in workouts. 
doesn't necessarily mean you have to nail everything because sometimes the battle is important to prepare you mentally for the race. But you do want to see that the majority of your workouts are going well. You're able to hit those paces and hit them with control. And, you know, but then there's other factors too. And I also look at what somebody's run in the past. You know, basically how familiar are they with the paces that they're going to run from prior race experience? If somebody's, you know, I had a guy come to me with just over a four-hour goal for his race at the beginning of the cycle. That's what he wanted. He wanted to break four. And his PR, sorry, his PR was just over four. His goal was to break four. And ultimately, he responded really well to the training. By the time we got to talking about his goal pace for the race, I thought he was somewhere in the 330 range in terms of fitness. So going to be smashing his sub four goal. And then a part of the discussion was him with him because I knew that those paces in the race were going to be very foreign from what he was used to. He had run three marathons, all between four hours and 4.15, if I'm not mistaken. And so he was very familiar with paces in a race in that range, not so familiar with the 3.30 range, at least from a race standpoint. And so we had to have a really good discussion about, okay, well, what are you prepared for? What do you think you're prepared for mentally? You know, how how ready are you to to go into the unknown is a question that I might ask somebody. I might also frame it in the way of asking how much risk are you willing to take? Because the half marathon, the marathon, they're both races that, you know, you can decide your plan based on how much risk you're, you're ready for, you know, especially with the marathon. So many things can happen. So many variables come into play that could go wrong. That the closer you are to your edge, the more likely shit's going to hit the fan and something's going to happen and you're going to miss. And so part of this discussion is how willing am I to take risk relative to the edge? If somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I want to bo- Boston qualifier, and maybe we got them ready for five or 10 minutes faster than that. And they are actually ready to run five or 10 minutes faster than their BQ or their BQ minus five or whatever it may be we may still choose to back them off of what they're ready for so that they can comfortably get that, that BQ minus five or whatever they're shooting for, take less risk. So these are variables you have to start to think about is how much risk am I willing to take? How familiar am I in race situations with the paces I'm about to run, which then sort of goes into that risk, risk equation. And then ultimately you want to decide on a race pace that fits those variables what you've trained for, how much risk you're willing to take, what you're ready for mentally, and how bad you want it becomes a part of that question. All those things fit in because as we've talked about, I think before on this podcast, Steve, we don't believe in B, C, or D goals. No, we don't. <laughs> we had one of our recent podcast We have training a members. goal and shit show. Those are the two. Those are basically the two things I like yeah, to say. A goal and shit show. <laughs> That also kind of rhymes, but we had a guy recently, I'm today. recently yep. joined our podcast group and he said, he went listed A through D goals yeah, in his goals. intro. <laughs> I won't mention him by name, but we quickly pointed out that we were only about A goals in this, in this world. Because really, if you have a B goal, you're going to hit the B goal because yes, you're fit. I mean, cause you've given you yourself, you've given yourself an out. Yep. So. And, and you, and you fall. So there's two things. You're going to hit the B goal, but you're also going to 
I don't know, just it's weak sauce generally. But one thing, Chris, I want to say that I want to reiterate to people, and it started at the very beginning of it, there's key workouts. The key workouts I think that are critical are any workouts where we didn't let you take any rest. Any workout where your coach put into it no stop breaks, water breaks, what? We repeat this over and over again. Those workouts that actually put you in a scenario that will be required in your race. What does your race require? What are the workouts that we put you? So we've got this Canova workout that we like to do, Chris. I, I heavily weigh towards that workout because I know I'm tensing those the physical muscles of necessarily shifting back and forth between paces, I don't give them any rest. It requires them to dig deep and decide how hard they're willing to work. It makes them test their mental game all at the same time. And there's no time, there's no time out. There's no rest period. There's no take a break. Our sport is very different than other sports in the world. In fact, it takes a long, long time and there are no breaks. There's no stopping. And so I would always tell people if those workouts were your best workouts, were probably more light and you hit paces, we're probably more likely to hit the pace that you want. If those workouts are your toughest workouts and you very rarely were able to hit the paces you needed and you needed the break, then we should shift back to the slower pace goal because you're not quite mentally, physically prepared in, con, in, in, in tandem to achieve the goal that you want. So being super aggressive is probably only going to result in a, in a negative and a poor result. And Chris, one of the things that we're really adamant about is not having bad results. We say the term shit show and it was terrible and it was, you know, as Larry Kim said, it was a dumpster fire. They actually found an emoji for a dumpster fire, which I've never seen before. Um, we don't want those kinds of experience for our athletes and um, we want you to have positive experiences. And so that's some of the reasons why we push back. What do you want, but what are you capable of and where did your workouts line you up? Because I think we've given them a lot of information about how to yeah. dial this in. And once you dial it in based on those variables, then create a race plan using our race strategy podcast. Yep. That makes sense. That's smart. But also sort of factors in the fact that you're going for it. Whatever that goal is, you're going for it with one real goal. So if you can't say that because your goal is stretched too far, then shift, back then shift back to the one that you can do. And that's the point that we're saying. Don't make that B, that plan B or that B goal happen in the context of the race. Make that B goal be the A goal so you can achieve it. Now, somebody might say, oh, that's weak. Well, have you run a marathon before? <laughs> it fucking's going to win. So you better go in president correct. We've got so many things playing against us right now. We've got weather changes. We've got all kinds of scenarios where even people running these faster downhill courses are having bad days because of the heat and a variety of other things. Come on, let's just, it's supposed to be fun, right? It's supposed yeah. to be an experience that you enjoy. It's supposed to be testing your edges and getting close to the edge, but it's not supposed to be something that you hang your head in shame after you get done. And when I see people after races who just are eating shit sandwiches like one after the, like I want to eat one shit sandwich. The number that I came across the finish line in my place or my time is the shit sandwich I want to eat. I don't need to compound it by having inappropriate goals and inappropriate training paces and inappropriate, and to say nothing about the fact that if people didn't actually do the work in the way that we we're talking about, they might not even get to the starting line, Chris, because they didn't have the appropriate paces. So listen, we're not telling you to be soft and telling you to be we. We're telling you to get real and try to find some real numbers, real data points. And we, I hopefully we gave you a lot of different scenarios that will help you get there. Yep. And there's a time and a place to be aggressive, you know, 
more than others, but just pick those battles and just know if you go in with an aggressive goal that you got to give yourself a little slack on the backside because you took a risk and that's okay. Sometimes you, you make that decision. You didn't back down going into Houston. Yeah. Right. Well, and you right. were not, and we knew you were not optimally prepared, but you got everything out of that race and more than you expected because you didn't back down. You didn't play, you didn't go to plan B. There was no plan B. It was plan A. There's definitely no plan B. Right. I just gave one of my runners who was doing a spring half a really aggressive, or we agreed upon a really aggressive plan for her that didn't go well. She ate a shit sandwich. And, but we did that go sort of eyes wide open, which is that she's a runner who typically is conservative, typically has had success because we've had smart conservative goals for her. In this case, it was time she's trained with me for a long time it was time to sort of stretch things and be aggressive with a half knowing that you know at the end of the day she could run another one it wouldn't be a big deal it wasn't so important to us that she was going to be mentally destroyed if if she didn't hit it and she didn't but she learned a lot in that race because she had to go to the the well just to get what she got i have a corollary in an athlete that i had just run this past weekend who at boston it was an epic shit show she totally froze up she had a terrible terrible day she was our rogue of the month, Amanda Rycraft. She was a rogue of the month after that, which was super goal- ballsy of her to be put in that position. But she said to everybody, I didn't reach that goal, so I'm going to go after it at Mounts to Beach. She ran 308 at Mountains to Beach, ran an incredibly, incredible good race. I didn't even want her to run the race, Chris. But she said to me, Coach, I know I've got it. I've got to prove it. I need to go get it. And so I even backed off. I backed off what I thought was the most prudent, smart plan of attack she followed my plan to a t knowing that she wanted to get a fast time but in it i had made that caveat that you know this could go bad and she just said coach i've got to go try i've got to go do it so even sometimes chris the athlete does know best and we don't want you to start second guessing it and being too conservative because in that case amanda was right and she got it done and she got what she wanted because she but that she wanted it so bad chris and she'd done the work beforehand she just ran into a really bad day and we didn't I don't think I'd take it into consideration how tough Boston was for certain types of people based on their weather, the way the weather works and their conditions and other things. So anyway, all that to be saying, even with the best blade plans, it doesn't always play out. Even with great plans, sometimes you just have to trust yourself and go for it. We're not a, it's not a panacea, right? We don't have the actual prescription for success. This is a long, in-depth process of trial and error, succeed and fail fail and fail and maybe succeed again it takes time and but you guys now have a whole lot of uh, to say to the i forget the gentleman who told us that we should no longer use arrows in our quiver because that's not appropriate anymore well i'm pulling out another arrow just bringing more arrows out of our quiver that we can fire at our goal that we want to achieve the last thing i'll say on this and we'll close it out is this you got to also remember context you know sometimes the people that are on this journey sometimes they get wrapped around an axle around choosing one time or another, and those times might be five minutes apart or two minutes apart. And I always have to remind people to say, to, and say, look, in a year, in two years, once we're further down this running journey, whether you ran a 330 or a 335 at this race won't matter because we're going to be talking about something much faster. Or whether you ran a 430 or 435, it's not going to matter because we're going to be talking about something much faster. So also cut yourself a little bit of slack in that if you're on this journey, if you're committed to it, ultimately, it's not going to matter in a year or two years time what you ran 
in this race, right? So, and if you follow the three pace system, you won't get hurt. <laughs> you'll stay healthy. You'll improve week by week, month by month, year by year. And we won't have this conversation. That 330 person will be running 315 to 310. The person running 430 will be running 345 to 330. Right. Because that's what happens. The human body is amazing in the way that it adapts. So there you go. 95 minutes. 95 minutes later, they came to some sort of tacit agreement. <laughs> Tracy, Tracy got way more than she yeah. bargained for on this. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks we appreciate te- you. Thanks for teeing up this craziness from today. All right, so that's it. We will close it out. Episode 77 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.